Hello and welcome to the fourth episode of Popular Antiquarian, the podcast about exploring the past to improve the present. Each episode I, Hieronymus J. Doom, look at something created before the turn of the millennium and attempt to explain why I think you should spend time with it instead of with your loved ones. This episode we're looking at a trilogy of short stories written by Alison V. Harding that appeared in the legendary pulp horror magazine Weird Tales between 1947 and 1949. When people think about the great contributors to Weird Tales, they're likely to bring the big three to mind. H.B. Lovecraft, Clark Ashton Smith and Robert E. Howard. But by the 1940s, Lovecraft and Howard were both dead and Smith, feeling the loss of his contemporaries keenly, withdrew from the world of weird fiction. Weird Tales persevered, however, remaining an active business until September 1954, when the declining sales and the ill health of the pulp story market more generally conspired to finish it off. Although most attention is paid to the golden era of the magazine, there was a depth of talent in the field, and among the less well-remembered writers was the mysterious Alison V. Harding, who contributed 36 stories to the publication between the years of 1943 and 1951, averaging about four stories per year during the brief period she was an active writer. Like so many of the pulp writers who laboured to feed the insatiable demands of the American public for cheap thrills, she is all but forgotten in the 21st century. A collection of her tales was put out in 2020 under the title The Forgotten Queen of Horror, and thankfully, the entire back catalogue of Weird Tales has been digitised and is widely available, preserving her work, or at least the work we know about, for future generations. I say the work we know about because a great deal of mystery surrounds Alison V. Harding. The moniker is a pseudonym, and although her work for Weird Tales endures, it's possible that she wrote for other publications, possibly even using a different pen name from Alison V. Harding. Details on her biography are scanty, and I'll talk a little bit more about that in the moment. Firstly, though, I need to talk about how I came across this obscure and fascinating writer. No antiquarian exists in a vacuum. One of my favourite YouTube channels is Horror Babble, a channel which provides audiobooks of classic works of pulp horror from the glory days of the pulps. It's an amateur affair. The host, Ian Gordon, is not, as far as I know, a trained actor, but an enthusiastic and talented workman who has done sterling work making the fiction of yesteryear accessible to modern audiences. While I'm in the gym grimly tackling the elliptical trainer in a doomed attempt to halt the passage of time, I've often got a pulp horror story pounding in my ears. It's comforting to know that if I push it too far and my heart explodes, there's a fair chance that the last word I hear will be shuddersome or cyclopean. It was on Horror Babble that I came across the work of Alison V. Harding, and there's audio versions of all three stories I'm going to discuss available on the channel. I said that Alison V. Harding is a difficult person to pin down. The only reason that we believe she used a pseudonym is because someone who examined the records of Weird Tales spotted that cheques sent by the office in payment for the Alison V. Harding stories were sent to someone called Jean Milligan care of an attorney's office in New York. 
I'm indebted to the sleuthing of Terence E. Hanley, who has written about Harding on his blog, though I take issue with the suggestion that the Harding stories might have been written by Milligan's husband, since their depiction of the working of the male mind seems so believable. There are plenty of women writers who are more than capable of inhabiting male characters. Patricia Highsmith and Dorothy Hughes spring to mind as obvious examples. Contentious textual argument aside, what Hanley provides is more or less the sum total of everything known about Jean Milligan. If she wrote for other publications, we have no record, and we don't know if she continued writing after 1951 when her publications in Weird Tales ceased, or at least ceased under the name of Harding. It's possible that she continued writing, but other evidence points in another direction. Milligan got married in 1952, and in fact she married Lamont Buchanan, an editor and art director at Weird Tales magazine. Buchanan, too, is a frustratingly opaque figure in the history of Weird Tales, but that's a story for another day. Given that Milligan ceased writing at almost the same moment as her marriage, it's easy to speculate that she turned her back on writing professionally in order to focus on her new domestic responsibilities. Although many women did continue to work after marriage, that was not the expectation, and indeed cultural pressures to become a full-time wife and mother have never quite gone away. If it was the case that Milligan abandoned writing to focus on her home life, I can only hope that it was a decision she made willingly, and not simply because her new husband expected it. I must stress that this is all speculation, based on a paucity of actual evidence. We will likely never know the truth. Regardless of the haze of mystery that surrounds Alison V. Harding, the fact remains that she was a popular and successful writer for Weird Tales. She's a solid, if sometimes unremarkable, prose stylist. Her works lack the grandiosity of Lovecraft, the lexical dexterity of Ashton Smith, or the vigour of Robert E. Howard, but her stories read well. Utilising a pared-down and conversational style, with carefully judged flourishes of ostentation. While I wouldn't put her at the top end of the pulp ladder in terms of how she constructs her sentences, she's definitely in the upper half. She's a better writer than the majority of hacks who churned out material for the magazine, and she has the ability to adjust her register to the occasion, rather than writing everything in the same leaden style. H.P. Lovecraft, I'm looking at you. What she does extremely well is take her ideas and develop them in interesting and surprising ways. She has a knack for taking a story in a logical direction while still keeping the twists fresh. Her ideas, whether that be musing on the true nature of darkness or exploring a world in which objects above a certain speed vanish into an unknown dimension, are captivating. And she shows great skill in putting these ideas across in a way that would resonate with the Weird Tales audience. While history may remember better those writers who are able to transcend the medium in which they work, there's a lot to be said for creating stories which retain a pulp sensibility, while still pressing gently at the edges of genre expectations. People enjoy the familiar, and using pulp tropes to smuggle in strange and unsettling ideas is a real skill. You can see that today with some of Marvel's better movies. Captain America Winter Soldier is a solidly entertaining superhero movie, but it's also borrowing a lot from Cold War thrillers to bring in elements that would likely be unfamiliar to many in the audience. 
people in silly suits doing big silly fights helps make the viewer more able to digest things that they might not otherwise think to consume. In many ways, given the unstoppable cultural power of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, you can argue that they should be taking even more risks than they do, given that even one of the worst MCU movies, The Eternals, still managed to double its production budget at a time when the pandemic was still very present in people's minds. It's less that Alison V. Harding is smuggling in elements from elsewhere, though you could argue that her stories have more of a science fiction feel than many of the classic weird tales, and, and more that she consistently finds somewhere more interesting to take her ideas than the pulp trappings might lead you to expect. I hesitate to call what she does twists, because they're more fascinating than surprising, but she has an enviable knack of pushing things in intriguing directions. Whenever I read an Alison V. Harding story, it never pans out in quite the way I was expecting, but the direction she chooses always feels natural and never forced. It's frustrating in the extreme that we know so little about her life and what ideas and art influenced her creativity. Although I firmly believe that art should be able to stand on its own merits, I do like being able to contextualise creators in order to deepen my own understanding of their work. Perhaps she lived a very ordinary life, but I'm not sure that I believe in ordinary lives. Even the most narrowly circumscribed lives have something of interest which can illuminate the art that the person creates. Emily Dickinson is perhaps the classic example, and the reclusive comic artist Stephen Dicto is another. Regardless, all we have of Harding are her words, and they will have to do. The Damp Man is probably her most memorable creation. Featuring in three stories, this unsettling antagonist sits somewhere between horror and science fiction. The first story, The Damp Man, tells a simple enough tale. A journalist, George Pelgrim, makes the acquaintance of a champion swimmer named Linda Mallory, and they make a connection. She quickly confesses that she is being stalked by a strange figure, a tall and bulky man who seems to be somehow permanently wet. He wears dark clothes and appears in many different places, always with the same unnatural aura and dark fixation upon Linda Mallory. As Pelgrim and Mallory grow closer, so too the behaviour of Lothar Remsdorf Jr., the titular damp man, seems to escalate in menace, until the two heroes are forced to flee their homes, the city, and ultimately even the country. What makes The Damp Man so successful as a story is that it combines a number of different vectors of fear. The most traditionally weird element is the physical characteristics and properties of the man himself, which trade on the fear of the inexplicable and the alien. A huge figure who combines an intimidating physical presence with a quality as something otherworldly, Remsdorf seems somehow solid and incorporeal at the same time. Listen to Pelgrim's impressions of Remsdorf when he first sees him up close. Closer. He was appalled by the repulsiveness of the man. The eyes were one colour, black. They had no depth, no expression. They were simply round discs like the button gimlets of a cod exhibited in the window of a fish store. There was something else about the man that came over George, suddenly freezing him with a horror that was hard to control. He looked. He looked like someone George remembered years ago, 
a bloated body grappling irons had pulled out of the river one cold night onto a police launch deck. What I love about this description is that it invokes the unnatural wetness that is the damp man's calling card without describing it directly. Both the reference to Cod's eyes and the comparison with a drowned man evoke water without ever using any synonym for wetness. The imagery leads you towards water, but the descriptive focus is on the wrongness, not the medium through which that wrongness is expressed. Remsdorf is a classic example of a warped reflection of humanity, something which is made more horrible because it has the shape of a person at a glance. There's something profoundly unsettling about things which appear human, but reveal increasing levels of wrongness the more you look at them. You see this in a number of classic horror stories. Jekyll and Hyde and Frankenstein both have central characters whose wrongness is apparent to those who witness them, even though neither is described in detail. Dracula too has a number of features that strike those who see him as unusually repellent. Think of the thick black hairs Harker describes seeing upon the vampire's palm, a detail which suggests something of the creature's bestial inner nature. Human beings are particularly good subjects for this kind of wrongness because human beings, in general at least, attend to other people preferentially. We look at other people considerably more than we look at other objects in our surroundings and we look at faces even more than we look at the rest of someone. This is what creates the phenomenon of the uncanny valley where things that are trying to look human and miss the mark marginally are somehow more unsettling than things which look much more bizarre. You get this a lot with CGI effects in films where an attempt to create something photorealistic misses by just enough to seem strange and unpleasant. Think of the recent cinematic adaptation of Cats where the expensive digital effects somehow can try to look far worse than just gluing some fur to Idris Elba's lovely face. Can someone perpetually damp trigger that same effect? Definitely. In theory, Remsdorf shouldn't seem any more uncanny than a large fellow who sweats a lot. Neither being large nor being sweaty is uncanny of themselves. Many of us are large. Most of us get very sweaty from time to time. Someone pouring sweat might not look their best, but they don't look like they're violating the laws of nature. Remsdorf is somehow different. He seems not simply fat, but bloated with fluid. He is not perspiring so much as constantly oozing. In the first story, we don't get much in the way of backstory for Remsdorf, but it's strongly suggested that his condition is the product of mad science perpetrated by his dead father. This feels like something that Harding dealt with quickly because she wanted the audience to focus on what Remsdorf is and what he does rather than worrying too much about where and how he came to be. It has the effect of robbing Remsdorf of some of his weirdness by making it clear that he is in some sense a person with a house, a car and apparently limitless financial resources but it also helps to make the second strand of horror more effective. Because on one level Remsdorf is simply a stalker, a man who has conceived an unpleasant fixation on an attractive young woman and thanks to his wealth and influence few extrinsic barriers to constrain his behaviour. Much like his origin, his motivation is deliberately sketchy. He has seen Mallory and wants her for some vague but creepily sexual reasons. 
Her own feelings don't matter. The only thing that matters is that he has seen something that he wants. He pursues his target with a ghastly relentlessness that gives the story terrific impetus. Obsession is a terrifying thing, both because of the direct impact of the stalker's attentions and because stalkers themselves seem so broken, so alien, and yet so much closer to ordinary than the more extreme examples of mental illness we see represented in the media. Serial killers, another popular villain, are often depicted as not entirely human. They often have more in common with vampires and werewolves than they do with the ordinary masses of humanity. They have, in some sense, always been monsters. I don't think many of us worry about turning into a serial killer, but it's entirely possible to imagine an otherwise normal-seeming person turning into a stalker. Most stalkers do have mental health problems of one sort or another, but there's something truly frightening about the possibility that anyone could become dangerously obsessed. There was a case in the media recently in the UK about a former journalist who was sent to prison for obsessively stalking several figures connected to the BBC. He destroyed his entire life and went to prison because a trivial set of circumstances somehow became an all-consuming obsession. As well as the psychological distress, there's something truly frightening in the lack of insight that many stalkers, especially romantic stalkers, demonstrate. Can they not see how their behaviour is affecting people? Can they not see how their behaviour is affecting their own life? Remsdorf has money. He has lots of money and influence, and this means that he can stalk his victim without concern for the traditional forces of law and order. One of the things that's becoming more studied in recent years is the negative psychological effects of extreme wealth and power. Most of us are protected to a degree from our worst impulses by the need to maintain healthy social relationships with the world around us. The rich and powerful cannot be held to account in the same way, and this creates opportunity for mental illness to fester. It's these two vectors of horror, the mundane and the uncanny, that combine to make the damp man such an effective story. I said that Harding has a knack for coming up with interesting ways to elevate her stories beyond the simple pulp tropes. The finale of The Damp Man is a great example of this. Remsdorf is finally defeated by low temperature. He literally freezes solid in the snow and ice of Canada, where the denouement takes place. And it's an illustration of how Harding's creations might be strange and disquieting, but they aren't utterly removed from cause and effect. In the two other Damp Man stories, she finds more ways to iterate upon the lore of the Damp Man and fills in more of his backstory. The final story, The Damp Man Again, places the focus very much on Remsdorf himself and provides an account of his early life that adds to, rather than detracts from, the horror of her creation. The second story is probably the least interesting of the three. It feels a little bit like a retread in parts, but it's still a pleasant, if less imaginative, read. Her other work varies in quality, but she always creates situations that are compelling and finds ways to put her own spin on them. So there you have it, Alison V. Harding, an obscure but fascinating figure in the history of weird tales who should definitely be better known than she is. You can easily access all of her work for free. Her page on the Internet Speculative Fiction Database has a complete list of her known stories, along with the issue of weird tales in which they appeared they are very much worth checking out. I'll almost certainly be covering more pulp writers who aren't as well known as they should be 
in future seasons of popular antiquarian so that's something to look forward to if you like obscure horror and obscure science fiction authors okay that's all for this episode you can get in touch with me by emailing hjdoomretrofun or one word at gmail.com don't forget that you can also listen to really quite a large number of episodes of my other podcast fantastic fights in which I play adventure gamebooks out loud and talk in genuinely exhausting detail about gamebook design. Thanks very much for listening, take care, and I'll see you soon.